Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Devin and Sonia. Hi, I'm Devin. I have a master's degree in American history with a concentration on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. This week's topic is romance. Romance. Marriage, maybe, sometimes. (laughs) Those things were all mutually exclusive for a pretty long time. True facts. So, you know. I think, I mean, this is the Valentine's Day special, but honestly, you can, Valentine's Day, like, it's a saint's day and then they made it a commercial yeah, holiday. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the whole bit. With Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the whole bit. But all the trappings around Valentine's Day of love, romance, commitment. Yeah. We're going to talk about that today. Then the history yeah. of how we got here. Because you know, in terms of like the history of human societies, the idea of getting married for love. We're going to be talking about traditional new. marriage. <laughs> traditional marriage is a man and his wife and his concubine and his other concubine <laughs> and his third concubine. <laughs> and none of them like each other. <laughs> oh, gosh. Tradition, traditional marriage is between a woman and the man that her okay, father sells her to. <laughs> exactly. That is, that's precisely what it is. So I think that's where we can start off is, uh, you know, we'll, we'll roll back the clock a bit. Talk about, <laughs> talk about marriage in ye olden days, which, you know, for the most part throughout the classical world the ancient world, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, marriage was more or less your dad tells you who to marry, <laughs> and then you get married to that person. <laughs> that's it. If you didn't like it, that <laughs> sucks to that's suck. just too darn bad for you. If you were a man, you could go and, I don't know, you could have mistresses and like visit prostitutes, etc. If you were a woman, you were well, that just sucked for you. <laughs> I don't know what around. to tell you. It was not great. <laughs> Which yeah, there's no one was having a great time. Now, again, that's not to say that there wasn't narratives around love and commitment. Um, whether inside of marriage or outside of it, uh-huh. I think we can easily point to Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. For all intents and purposes, for a lot of human history, marriage was about solidifying alliances, gaining yourself some useful in-laws, producing heirs, consolidating wealth, consolidating yeah. land, and power. Not, no. Not, Am I, I missing mean, not any, that I know any of, points? But, uh, my specialty isn't exactly... <laughs> The classical world. Yeah. <laughs> this is fair. But yeah, and that's that's why and uh you know, in a lot of cases, again, 
this is why you would have a lot of societies having, um, Mm -hmm. you know, allowing a man to take multiple wives because, you know, A, so that you could have a better chance of producing a living heir, um, preferably a male heir, and also um, because then that allows you to make more connections with more families. Yeah, it's also um, a major part of the reason why priests can't get married. Yep. Is that, sorry, did I skip ahead on your notes? You skipped ahead a little bit, but that is more than okay, because now we're going to (laughs) talk about the Christianization in Europe. Yeah! Which, yeah, I mean, there was... There was some ups and downs with that one, some some good, some bad, but definitely one of the one of the outcomes of this was basically the marriage is seen as a sacrament in the Catholic Church, and that's it's a commitment that and a vow that two people are making before God. So basically when Christianity shows up in your town, they say, eh, you know, you're not technically allowed to, like, sell your daughter outright. Like, she still has to consent to this. And, like, the man also has to consent to getting married yeah. because if there's not um, mutual consent to the marriage, it's an invalid sacrament. Now, that's not to say that people didn't keep on essentially negotiating, selling, etc. their children, more or less. But, but at least to, to a degree, like forced marriage is no longer, uh, it's it's kind of frowned upon (laughs) yes you have to make it look like everybody was all about it yeah like there there were at least you kind of had to be somewhat on board like you couldn't straight up do like a kidnapping marriage where you kidnap a woman and force her to marry you because that's no longer valid yeah um, but again, at this point, it is by and large not really about love and romance. It is still, especially if you have any kind of money or power, about yeah solidifying that money and power. Obviously, if you are a peasant or otherwise a poor person, there's a little bit more wiggle room there. And, you know, it doesn't really matter which other poor person in your village you marry i mean i I mean it it matters but no one's really gonna stop you if you want to yeah marry someone (laughs) there's less at stake yeah exactly there's a lot less at stake um around this and and you know there is kind of the ideal marriage is one that's at least has you know companionship and where they at least like each other well enough but romance as we would think of it today really starts taking off in uh you know the high middle ages where we get courtly love so you know this is what what we think of as as you know chivalric romance where you have your brave knight going off to do his heroic deeds 
on quests and he's he's wearing his lady's color on his arm. His lady is always the woman who is married to his lord. So the courtly love ideal is not about um like sexual love in any way. Yeah. It is about purely romantic love where it is seen as something that could be edifying and that could make you more noble because you are, you know, you have this outlet for your feelings of love and passion in this non-sexualized yeah. way. And it's also kind of tied into a lot of the codes of chivalry that are coming about in this day and age. Um, I mean, the broader code of chivalry is being developed between about 1170 and 1220, and for the most part, it's a martial right. code. Like, people today talk about, oh, chivalry's dead because men don't hold the door open or whatever. That was, like, a, very, a, a small part of chivalry was be respectful to women. <laughs> um, the rest of it was, like, don't slaughter peasants. Don't rape nuns. Don't burn down the houses of the villagers when you're at war. Like, it's mostly about... It's, it's mostly time. about, like... Don't be a war criminal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much what chivalry actually is about. It's basically these codes that are enforced both by the, you know, secular lords and elites of society and also by the church. Um, um, so they have what's called the peace of God in the 10th century and then the truce of God in gains more prominence in the 12th century um but basically these are the church saying hey here are the rules of engagement in combat you're not allowed to fight on sundays you're not allowed to fight on thursdays because thursday was the day of the last supper you're not allowed to fight on friday because that's good friday you're not allowed to fight during lent basically there's a bunch of days where you're not allowed to fight so there was like 80 <laughs> days where you could legitimately fight so that's just like a fun little thing to know. In the Middle Ages, these types of literature, which, I mean, today the most known examples would be yeah. um, like the Arthurian legends, right? Where you have heroic knights and they, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have the Lady Guinevere at the center of it all as this, this object yeah. of desire, but of non-sexualized necessarily desire. And then, you know, the, the whole situation between yeah. her and Lancelot. <laughs> creates tragedy etc etc but so that's kind of where we get this prototypical like mm -hmm. kind of what we would think of today as like fairy tale romance almost of like yeah. you know the prince and princess and the knights and that kind of um ideal of you know you write poetry yeah. to each other and love letters and and give flowers and little mm -hmm. trinkets but this is all happening in in the upper classes and while some of it does filter down to the lower classes, it would be on a much simpler basis, right? Like, there are localized traditions through the Middle Ages and even into the early modern period of how people in a village or in a town might show affection for yeah. each other and sort of engage in these courtship rituals. Because... Uh, again, when you're looking at someone in a village or a town, like a tradesperson or a farmer, yeah, 
marriage for love's sake even then was not seen as a good idea. It was not thought of as being particularly stable, but it was seen as a good thing to care about and to have this affection between a couple. So, you know, you have traditions like Welsh engagement spoons where a young man carves, <laughs> you know, a beautiful wooden spoon that's very intricate for, for his lady so love. For, for our listeners, the reason this is funny is I had to bring it about up, sorry. two weeks into dating uh, my partner, fiance, whatever he is, <laughs> happened to go to Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and he came back like two weeks later and he like had all these presents for me and one of them was this wooden spoon and like my whole family's from like the UK and I like sent a picture to my mom and she was like oh my gosh it's an engagement spoon and it's like we had at that point in time been together like a month <laughs> Anyway, I uh, still don't have an engagement ring. No, I'm kidding. Listen, yes. when you know, you know, so I Devin. Have this, I, I have this spoon. Well, you got the spoon. You're ready to go. You just kept being like, the guy told me it wasn't only for engagements. And I was like, that's because the guy wanted you to buy a spoon. Anyway, but see, this this leads to my next point, which is that at this time, even among the lower class, when you don't have as much in the way of wealth or land or anything like that on the line, you would still be very much expected to have your family right. and friends and neighbors support and approval of your relationships. So it's very important that you're sending these pictures uh, to, right. to your family if, if we're doing traditional marriage, Devin. <laughs> Two and a half years ago, my family needed to know um, about But yeah, I mean, a lot of... <laughs> yep. <laughs> Devin, do you want your virtue to be sullied? All right. Honestly. My virtue. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in, in all seriousness, there there was kind of a, you know, you look at kind of surviving, um, you know, literature, but also sermons and like, you know, kind of morality tracts that were put out. It's very much like there's there's a big emphasis put on, you know, yes, it's nice for young people to you know, fall in love and, like, have these feelings, but they should not get married based on that. They should be getting married based on, you know, being compatible, having, you know, uh, uh, personalities that are going to match in the long term. And it's it was very much a, you know, even if you were a lower class person, your whole community has this big investment in you to, you know, being a stable couple basically yeah. so even there it's you know there's still this quite quite suspicious outlook on um you know on love and romance because it's seen as something that's very volatile that can cause people to act irrationally yeah. i think obviously the the most famous example is uh, in the early modern world would be you know romeo <laughs> and juliet where it's a whole story about what happens when young people who are, you know, in love, go and decide to act on that without thinking about 
anybody yeah. else. And Two I mean, it's, year olds it's a cautionary make tale. And how many people yeah. die? Six? Six people die? Yeah, at least <laughs> six. So, you know, there, there's still quite this, um, you know, kind of skepticism towards this of, well, you know, it, it's fine to have some of these feelings in moderation, but don't, you know, don't go basing your whole life on yeah. it. Jeez. But then we start to get a little a little shifty shift uh-huh. in the 18th century with a new scandalous genre, the novel. Oh, no. Okay, so novels it'll aren't... Teach, it'll, it'll teach the women's such horrible ideas. <laughs> women reading? Getting ideas? Overly emotional women with their fiction. But men as well. <laughs> I will I will say it was men as well that they had their concerns about. So I mean the quintessential kind of like 18th century sentimental novel is uh 1740 Pamela or Virtue Rewarded uh written by <laughs> Samuel Richardson. And the whole story is Pamela, 15-year-old maidservant, she was raised in the countryside by, you know, pious good parents and she goes off to be a maid and while she's there her employer mr b a wealthy landowner makes unwanted and inappropriate advances towards her (laughs) scandal but of course pamela being a virtuous pious young woman manages to ward off these onslaughts and maintains her virtue through adversity and because of her purity and uh, also a series of of events um mr b is able to repent and reform and finally comes to pamela and proposes marriage to her and so because of her virtue pamela gets married to a very rich fancy man and spends the second half of the book learning how to be a fancy wife (laughs) <laughs> which this was like bestseller material like you think 50 shades of gray is a big deal no this was like sold out everyone was talking about it there are stories about you know there'd be one person in the village who's like reading the book aloud to everyone else because everyone wanted to hear the story um in one case there's i'm not sure It's disputed how true this is, but apparently in one of the villages where it was all being read aloud to people, when they got to the part where she marries Mr. B, everyone went nuts, ran to the church, and started ringing the church bells, yelling, Pamela got married! Our Pamela is finally (laughs) married! So they were really excited. (laughs) Like, it's this... but, But genuinely, it's like this new genre of fiction that's focused on... Um, you know, the lives of young women and their romantic entanglements. Um, in 1761, you get Julie by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, which is, you know, another tale. This, this is more a tale of, you know, another like class defying, um, very romantic love because you have Julie who is 17 and she's the daughter of a baron, but then she falls in love with her tutor, and how can they ever make it work when she is a baron's daughter and he is but a humble tutor? Um, in 1778, you have Evelina by Fanny Burney, who, again, she is, you know, this 
this uh, gentle girl who's been raised in the countryside with good morals and good values, but then she gets sent off to London and must learn oh, the no. ways of the world, and along the way meets a distinguished nobleman and gets into a romantic relationship with him. Now, and, you know, these are very emotional novels. People, like, there were people wrote letters to the authors talking about how moving these were. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was one of the first of the, you know, kind of celebrity novelists. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he got letters with readers saying that the novel nearly drove them mad from how much <laughs> feeling they felt. You know, they're talking about they, they describe in their letters that they were sobbing, they were tormented, they were taken to ecstasy. So, like, it's just, you know, these big feelings around these romantic novels where it's typically, I mean, you know... 11-year-old me could definitely relate with regards to, like, Twilight. Right? <laughs> I'm just saying... <laughs> This was very popular at the time, and I think I think that's a normal human thing to want these big, exciting stories with lots of emotion in them. Um, and I think also the thing to notice is that in in most of these like very popular stories, right, it's very you know, it it is starting in on this trope in many cases of forbidden love but also especially with pamela of you know a, a very the the virtuous heroine versus the rake versus the you know yeah. like lustful seductive man so that's kind of adding this new like sexual undertones to this and well overtones really but of course it's <laughs> They have to present it in these very, to a modern reader, uncomfy ways. Um, yeah. Because, of course, if she consents, Devin, then she would be a harlot. A, a common <laughs> woman of the night. And we cannot have that in our heroine. No, no, no. So, lest you think that men were exempt from these these torments i will point you to 1787's suffering of young werther which is all about a love triangle where you have werther i'm just gonna pronounce it in the english way because okay. I, I can't be bothered so you have werther who is this middle class-ish artist in 18th century germany and he's fed up with the city and he goes to move you know, into the countryside to get a more, you know, artistic situation. Mm -hmm. And there he meets the beautiful, wonderful, he describes her as angelic Charlotte Latte. <laughs> and, you know, he falls head over heels in love with her. But alas, Devin, she is already engaged to Albert. <gasps> the horror. No. But through it all, this love triangle persists with Werther just wanting to be with Charlotte, but also tormented because he knows he can never do this to her because she's already been engaged to Albert and he meets Albert and they actually get along and he doesn't want to hurt anyone and he decides that truly the only solution is for one of them to die and he takes it upon himself to be the one to do it so he goes out with a pistol and he shoots himself 
And then over the course, it takes him two hours to die. It's a whole scene. It's very dramatic. Uh, spoiler warning, I guess, but this novel has been out since 1787. So <laughs> I don't think I need to give you yeah. spoilers for I it. Think there's like a few movies about it. And Definitely. There's movies about Goethe himself. Yes. So like... But uh, I just want to add that A, this was another bestseller, super popular. Uh, people actually wanted to dress like the characters in the book. Like, Werther wears a blue frock coat, so <laughs> blue frock coats came very into vogue. But there was also a whole hysteria around this novel of the youths. The youths are going to read this, and suddenly they will all commit suicide every time they have a broken heart. And it, it does seem that this was completely exaggerated. Um, th there's one case, I think, where it, it was, it seems like it might have been connected because the woman who had died had a, had a copy of the book in her pocket or, or on her person. Um, so they think maybe, maybe this inspired it, but otherwise it seems like it was just, uh, a uh, good old moral panic of all the all the old <laughs> folks just saying, "Oh well, he killed himself. Must have been reading those novels." Can you imagine if Twilight had inspired fashion crazes, I like mean... other than wearing shirts with <laughs> sparkly vampires on the front of them? Because uh, yeah. like the featured clothing in Twilight is a oh. ankle length khaki skirt, yes, and a man wearing a sleeveless white button down <laughs> with a tan jacket, a like beige leather jacket. I just have to like rag on Twilight for a little bit. Well, you know, in connection I... to Goethe somehow. <laughs> You know, he. I I think the blue frock yeah, coat is a look. Definitely better than the beige leather jacket with sleeveless white button down. <laughs> I'm I'm really curious about what that would look like, just in men's fashion, a sleeveless white button down. Know. Does I it still so, have a yeah. collar? Is I'm very confused about this this yeah, description. Maybe she meant like rolled up sleeves, and it somehow got. Typo. No, it's like sleeveless. I know it says sleeveless, because but what what could it possibly short sleeve? But maybe? they like they, they they talk about his like sparkly biceps. Well, well, I was I was holding out to hope. <laughs> that was wrong of me to do, as we all know. <laughs> so, anyway, back on back on my point is that by. Yeah. You know, throughout the 18th, the 18th century, century, you now have this sort of ideal on one hand of courtly love that is still around, right? Like you're supposed to, you know, write poetry for your beloved and send flowery letters. But there's also this kind of competing um, notion of, you know, love is supposed to be this big, passionate, exciting thing where, you know, you're willing to die for it. You're willing to, to you know, go and, and, and go through all sorts of trials and tribulations and be <laughs> narrowly avoid being sexually assaulted multiple times and then finally marrying <laughs> this man. Um, so we... Uncomfy. Yeah, it's very uncomfy. And, and then we hit the 19th century. Which is 
you know, takes all of these and then puts its own spin on it. Um, and in the 19th century, a lot of it actually is coming from women. So the writers of this genre start to become overwhelmingly women. Um, in 1811, you have Sense and Sensibility, which is Jane Austen's response in a lot of ways to these 18th century novels. Because um, in sensibility at this time did not mean like sensible. It meant like sensitive and easily yeah. moved, easily brought to big emotions. And kind of the whole point of that novel is on one hand, you have Eleanor, who is the sense. She does yeah. things the old fashioned way where you should look for stability and a partner and, you know, mutual affection, but uh, also have more realistic ideas versus Marianne, who is sensibility, who wants to be swept off her feet, Marianne. romanced, have <laughs> adventures, go out in the rain and nearly die. Because if you go out in the rain <laughs> and you're a woman in the 19th century, you immediately catch a cold and nearly, nearly perish because you are so frail. But that's... After she and she breaks her, she breaks her foot yeah. or some sprains her ankle and has to be like carried back. Exactly, she's she's very because she almost prone. dies in the rain from falling down a hill twice in that book. <laughs> Listen, she's she's quite the character. I will all say that, but you know, you kind of have this again idea of of still the sort of this skepticism towards people who are embodying this kind of 18th century ideal of this, uh, you know, romantic, quote unquote, man who's going to sweep you off your feet. And, you know, Jane's over here saying, eh, hey, maybe don't. Maybe don't go for yeah. that guy. Go go for the nice colonel. <laughs> go yeah, for the 35-year-old colonel. <laughs> Yo, but it's Alan Rickman, it, so like, do oh, it. Oh, absolutely do it. I just, you know, it always does make me a little uncomfy in the book that, you know, Marianne is like 15 and he's like 35 and everyone's like, this is a great idea. Love that. But again, I mean, this is, we're talking about a time period where that was normalized because again, kind of the whole point of this book is marrying the guy who is like super hot and romantic and exciting is not a good idea zero out of yeah, ten because he don't definitely do it. already got someone else pregnant yeah. and can't marry you because then he'll be disowned and won't have any money exactly um and Hashtag then willoughby <laughs> right but then you kind of see um this sort of new idea that comes along actually with uh, Jane Austen's next work, Pride and Prejudice, of love as actually, rather than being suspicious of it, it becomes a f sort of a, a force to improve people. Right. Um, you know, you look at Pride and Prejudice, I mean, the whole point of that is through their love, Elizabeth and Darcy both become better people. Yeah. Darcy becomes less proud, Elizabeth becomes less prejudiced, and that is held up in that book as the ideal of love. Um, you know, a few decades later, you get in 1847, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, where, <gasps> you know, again, you have it's such an issue where right? I love her so much. <laughs> well, but when you look at it, right, like, especially in the context of the 19th century, Jane... Like Jane Eyre has a decent amount of agency in that book, yeah, and she, she does. doesn't put up with, you know, with any of what's his name, Edward Rochester, right. Rochester. 
I wanted to say Radcliffe, and I'm like, no, Edward, that's Daniel. Edward Fairfax Rochester. There you go. I could not remember his last name for the life of me. <laughs> so, like, you look at Jane Eyre, and you look at her interactions with Rochester, she doesn't put up with any of his nonsense. Like, she, <laughs> she does, really I mean, doesn't. to an extent. Like, you know what I mean? She's not Pamela. She's not going, she oh no, like, please stop assaulting dies me. in the rain. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're a woman in a 19th century novel, never go out in the rain ever. You will die. <laughs> so this is, you know, and again, this is a situation where Jane goes from being, you know, kind of naive and sheltered to she gains life experience and it's through her love for Rochester that is is part of why she grows as a person but he also grows as a person and realizes that he has to stop playing ridiculous games and dressing up as a a a traveling fortune teller to (laughs) trick people into marrying or or seeing if they love him or not um it's you know they both mature and become better people through this love um this is also an idea that you see in the 1854 novel North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, um, where, fuck, what are their names? Oh, no. I Richard Armitage yeah, and, I <laughs> and the other woman. <laughs> it's Richard Armitage. Uh, I need to find their actual name. <laughs> Wikipedia because he wanted to shake her hand. Oh my god. <laughs> right, right, right. It's Margaret Hale and John Thornton. Thornton. There we go. Right. Okay. And Thornton Mills. So <laughs> Yes. So, I mean, you have the 1854 novel North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. And this is again a novel where both people are improved by their love for each other. Um, It's a situation where Margaret Hale moves from the south of England that at this point is still mostly rural agricultural situation, and they move up north to Manchester. Um, Oh no, they move to the town of Milton, but it's based off Manchester. (laughs) Sorry. Messed up my notes. Um, It's a fictional industrial town in the north, right? So lots of smog and, you know, it's very hard life. And there she meets John Thornton, Thornton, who is nouveau riche, and he's a cotton mill owner, and he has contempt for his workers. But through their relationship together, he stops being such a dick, and she basically learns how to stand up for herself and... Neither you know, of becomes them become kind of less, less classist, naive about though. the world. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. This is 1854, Devin. Like, uh, the bosses have to control everything because the dumb poors don't know what to do with stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be clear, this novel definitely, uh, definitely not a uh, labor rights no. novel. This is very much a. I would I would say it's kind of proto progressive era, almost of like yeah. well the poor people like as in like the the nineteenth yeah, century progressive, progressive like, era of like P rich people are better because they're rich um, and that and, proves that they yes. are the smartest and they can make they have to make the good choices for the, all very Andrew Carnegie we have to make sure yes. that we make appropriate decisions with our wealth to better the poor's. 
Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I am not using this as an example of good class analysis, <laughs> but it it is, again, another novel where you're seeing women have agency, and also in all of these novels, women refusing to marry people who they don't love. Yeah. Uh, in Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie turns down the annoying Mr. Collins, even though marrying him would... Secure Give her entire her family. Security. Yeah, secure her entire family. And she turns down Mr. Darcy, who makes like a bajillion dollars a year and has a giant house 5, and pounds. would even more so. It's 5,000 pounds a year. He has 10,000 a oh, year, he does. Oh, Mr. Bing Mr. Bingley. Has Mr. Bingley 5, has a mere 5,000 a year. <laughs> Come on, Devin. <laughs> it's hard for me to keep track of the income of all of these 19th century men. <laughs> <sighs> did i watch pride and prejudice too much as a child with my mom who would put it on and then point out to me how nice and you know how the women all stand up very straight and proper and try to get me to have good posture okay, well they Maybe. also had busks in their corsets they couldn't slouch over they had to stick a wood down their front <laughs> Devin, I know this now, but five-year-old me was like, oh, man, like, why we gotta watch this again? <laughs> and then I came to love it as an adult, because, you know, it's a good time. It's a good time. But, yeah, I mean, similarly, Jane Eyre refuses to marry Rochester when she finds out that, you know, he's got a secret wife in the attic. Um, <laughs> uh, Margaret turns down Mr. Thornton. Like, all of them have... All of these novels are... Women having a decent amount of agency for 19th century standards and also showing love as being necessary for a marriage yeah. that you, you know, which is a relatively new idea. Yeah. Um, of course, that's not uh, terribly realistic. I mean, these are these are ideas that are going around in the 19th century. But by the, you know, I think more realistic depictions of actual marriage at the time would be the Little Women series by Louisa May Alcott, yeah. which does have its issues. But I will say in terms of 19th century, you're still very much realistically going to be marrying for stability. Yeah. But again, you are getting this ideal of there should also be love. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to talk real quickly about some things that are happening in um, British North America, um, because for a good portion of like the colonial era, things were pretty much the same. Like it's the same kind of deal. Uh, you, especially in like Puritan New England, um, you had marriage was a community event. Essentially, like the whole community had to approve of it, and Yep. Um, you had certain responsibilities toward the community then as a married couple. Um, but because of the differences in immigration to other parts of the colonies, um, where you had like in uh, the Chesapeake area and stuff, a lot more single people coming, um, the expectations of what a family or a married couple were supposed to do and be in society started to change. And then, of course, we have um, 
the War for Independence, which changes the basis of how what had been British culture sort of existed, right? So in in Britain, you had like the the building blocks of society was the family because the family was how you controlled land and property and the government. But once you take like landed aristocracy out of the government and essentially have like this idea yes. that everyone contributes to the governing of everything, then which again doesn't really happen in the very beginning of uh, the United well, States, you know. But again, they, we're, we're talking get a there. lot about ideals in this episode. Yeah, this is it's a lot, a lot about of ideals. what people wanted to yeah, achieve. So the idea of the family became less of a um, like public situation and more of a private situation. And you have the like two spheres of public and private really becoming separate things. Um, and you have this idea of the Republican family. So within the Republic, the the individual and individual responsibility and all of these things are like really important um, as sort of ideals of the nation. And the way the, the basic building block of that society is then going to be the family, which is supposed to be a little microcosm, a little synecdoche of the larger society. So it, it what they sort of wanted was for it to be like when it's in the colonial period the family was supposed to be a little mini patriarchy where you have the man representing the governor and then like his family being sort of like the peasants or whatever well yeah Um, like you know the wife is supposed to be kind of like his subordinate but she's above the children so she can command the children it's a whole hierarchy hierarchical there's like a a chain of authority and that's how the colony was supposed to exist and how then inside the family it was supposed to exist and you had like all of these chains of hierarchy going down but essentially what what starts to happen is like so that's the ideal for the colony before the war for independence but it never really actually existed in north america because there wasn't the infrastructure for it so you have all of these rural colonialists living you know sort of on their own essentially for a long time and the that circumstance those different circumstances from what was happening in europe um forces an interdependence between like husband and wife and children and it gave women in the americas er, in british north america um, much more power and social freedoms not quite totally economic freedoms but like they could represent like represent themselves in society outside of their husband right um so the model of the family starts to change and that's when you get this republican family where the the ideas that, and you might have, if you took an American history class in the United States at any point in time, you've probably heard about like Republican motherhood, where the woman is in charge of the entire domestic sphere. She's also in charge of raising the children to be good, responsible citizens. The so hand, the idea of the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, Devin. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like the 
education and everything was also this woman's role. And so women were supposed to be educated, um, which is a little bit of a shift. Um, but also because of this interdependence um, in early America, the like early United States, the idea of what was expected of a marriage starts to change. So it it's much more about companionship, about sharing marital practices, about it, your marriage being reciprocal, of your duties sort of being split. Like, maybe it's not totally equal, but that whatever you're giving, you're getting from your partner as well. So that starts to be a, a like, big issue. It also, the idea of um, private property and laissez-faire economics being sort of foundational to the the ideas of the republic um the family unit as this building block is again really important and all of this is going to affect uh the legality of marriage because the u.s is not founded as a religious nation the church doesn't have right there's not an ecclesiastical legal system right in the United States. So they have to figure out what is what are courtship rules going to look like and what is family law going to look like in this new uh, country. And essentially what happens is they come up like they come up essentially with three central tenets of of what family life is supposed to be and it's the the permanency of marriage the sacredness of the home and the dependence of civilized life on a functional family so from the very beginning you have this talk of uh every time there's a crisis in the united states the family is falling apart and it's going to ruin all of america anyway next time you hear about that on the news or in a political ad uh it's not happening because they've been saying that it's been happening since the United States were colonies. So there's that. But also, as marriage became part of secular law, contractualism, i.e. marriage being a legal contract, had a major effect on what it meant for each spouse. So marriage had to be mutual and affectionate, and you had to have that sense of reciprocity. So essentially, like, you were marrying for affection, you were marrying for companionship, and if at some point in time that contract is breached, you can remove yourself from it. Right. And obviously this didn't go so far as to be like totally equal because there is um a little bit of there are in certain states um, limitations on divorce law, but overall, it was if this is not what it was supposed to be, you can get out of it. Hey, um, and this progressive, yeah, yeah, and um, and so like that also then changes the understanding of what an engagement is. An engagement also becomes part of um, American contract law because the once this becomes um, a situation where both parties really have to fully consent, yes. like in a legal sense, um, the question of whether marriage was an exchange of property between a father-in-law and a suitor or mm -hmm. a contract between love 
lovers that was like an actual like it's in legal documents this question of like what are we saying marriage is and so that really like what you were talking about before where it's like oh no i'm pregnant but you said we were married and now you're leaving that you're allowed to sue for that then because because it becomes part of um American tort law, where this is a breach of contract. We, You have said publicly that we were going to be married, and now you're saying that we're not going to be married, and so you could assign fault to someone for not going through on an oh. engagement and sue them for that. Um, so, yeah, that, that becomes... And it can be, you know, sort of either way. Like, you know, a, a, I read about one case where it was a woman who had decided, like, she didn't want to get married because he like lost all of his money or something. And then another one, this guy had told her that he was going to marry her. And after a year and a half, they hadn't gotten married. And she was like, dude. So she sued him. Um, but like, you know, yeah. you're it's between the two of them. So the woman also yeah. has legal standing in the court, which is really cool. Um, yeah. So that's just a little bit about like how American ideals and the these ideas of and i can i'm gonna get more into this um next season when yeah new season our new our new season comes out in june uh we're gonna be talking about about this a bit um but we're also a little short on time so um for our uh background or sorry (laughs) for our bonus episode um i'm gonna be talking a little bit about um courtship in um communities of enslaved peoples in North Carolina, uh, which should be probably and a bummer, that's but Patreon exclusives. Um, yes, that's some Patreon exclusive content, so if you're interested in that, um, we're going to be putting it up on there. And oh, that's in our yeah, sign Follow us on, on or sub- subscribe yeah. on Patreon and I think to, get to finish out this episode. I mean, I know we like to end uh, on, you know, how what what can we take away from this? And I think my my takeaway uh, after yeah. reading all this is that I'm just real glad that I get to live in a time period where, you know, you can just get married to a person because you love them, and I don't have to think about like, hmm, but. What about, what's your financial situation? How much land do you own? (laughs) And I mean, that really doesn't stop. I mean, you know, I ended our discussion Um, before at like like late, mid to late 19th century. But like, you know, I think genuinely like I am, it, it really only stops truly being a thing when women are able to enter gainful employment basically when when finally we are allowed to go and work uh and and have our own yeah have our own education our own wages and yeah i think that's (laughs) kind of a nice time to be alive in that sense yeah i think it's also nice uh to be able to look back and see like because like my reasons for getting married mostly have are like legal issues like yes. i want a next of kin in the country of canada and things like that so it's like a lot of you know when people are like why are you guys getting married now or like why 
do you want to get married at all or whatever and we're like no you know the civil rights that come along with like having your relationship recognized by the government and people are like that's not very romantic you can look back and be like marriage has never been romantic son who you choose to marry is romantic but the act itself is very important for legal yeah. rights and i think obviously we didn't go into like marriage equality stuff but like that's yeah, it's <laughs> obviously very important and like that's yeah. a big part of the reason why marriage equality laws are so important because you want to be able to have a way to legally say like yes this person is my family and we are you know we we have certain legal rights yeah. with with each other and i mean i don't know i know People yeah. can be very like, yeah, like, why do I need a piece of paper to say that I love this person or whatever? But I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. You don't, but you need a piece of paper. Yeah, exactly. And like, I know that you love I, I don't know. I just, if anything, I'm in favor of like expanding this definition rather than being like, well, let's just get rid of it. Like, I wish that there was a way I could legally recognize somebody to be like you know what i mean like i do think it's dumb that you can marry someone like i, I could marry yeah. a stranger tomorrow i mean i'm already married so i'd have to get divorced first but you know what i mean yeah. my point is if yeah. you're a single person you can marry a stranger tomorrow <laughs> yeah. and then the day after tomorrow they have all these legal yeah. rights they can have access to your health insurance they can be by your bedside when you die they can be they can do all these things but like yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can inherit but anything. like why can't they i can give my insurance you have, to they can. a friend or a family member why can't i sign off on that like i i'm in favor of expanding yeah. these rights rather than i don't know saying oh there's no point in having this i guess that's my my hot take <laughs> yeah Hot take, expand. <laughs> expand allowing people to legally add people to their family. <laughs> yeah, that's. I support that as well. We should be able to do that. But yeah, so for more hot takes about love and history and all that fun stuff, come listen again next week. Thank you for listening to the Bapiaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and our website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week!